So you're listening to Metinicus Wannabe. I'm your host, Lachiermeyer. It's Saturday, what's today's date? February 26th? 27th? 27th. I don't know. Well, in any event, um, you'll know probably. And um, I'm pleased to welcome my friend and special guest, John Rosenwald, who uh, is here as a poet and an author and a friend. And um, we're going to discuss uh, a book that he's recently published and a whole bunch of poetry feature. Uh, the book that he just released is called The Sonnets to Orpheus by Rainier Maria Rilke. Did I pronounce his name Close correctly? Close enough. Well, well you know. Yeah. Consider who you're talking to. Nobody ever and gets it right. No. Well, in any event, John has been working on the poems of Rilke. Will you pronounce it for me? Yeah, Reiner Maria Rilke. Rilke. You've been working on these poems, as I remember, reading this stuff for like 50 years? Uh, more than that. We'll, I'll, I'll talk about that, actually, because that's part of the fun of uh, well, what it's involved. Uh, welcome, John. And there is one feature to the program that I always discuss is the weather even though it's not a, as people have come to enjoy my weird little weather reports. Um, we happen to be in Augusta, Maine at my house, um, and the weather is brilliantly sunny and quite cold. And we had a bunch of snow yesterday. We've dug out of that, and now we're ready to do this show with John. So, John, welcome, and uh, take it away. Well, thanks, Locke. It's, it's wonderful to be here, wonderful to see you. If you haven't been to Locke's house, it's like entering an art gallery. Extraordinary works by his mother, including a recent self-portrait at 94, do I remember? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, which, which shows the strength of this woman, but also, I mean, as a painter, but also the strength of this woman as a subject. It's, it's just her head tilted a little bit to the side and showing an energy that should exist in every 94-year-old, but probably does not. So it's, it's a great treat to be here. And what we're going to do today is to talk about poetry and, and the creative spirit, actually, in the context has to be on this day of war and the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, immediately, it's about Rainer Maria Rilke, the most important German language poet of the 20th century, and specifically about one of his two last books. And as Laka said, the Sonnets to Orpheus or Die Sonette an Orpheus. Uh, they're extraordinary because they're so important in the history of European 20th century literature, but also almost more important because of what they say about the creative spirit. There are more than 50 sonnets published in this collection and another five, six, seven that were written but excluded, and they were written in 15 days. Would you define for the listening audience and for me exactly what a sonnet is? Ah, that's a major part of what we're going okay. to talk about, right. but let's do it right off. Historically, sonnets have been in English literature mostly based on Shakespearean sonnets. Mm -hmm. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day, etc. Um, so usually 14 lines, usually a rhyme scheme, often four uh, either three or four stanzas, 
four lines together, four more lines together, and then either three and three or six together with a defined rhyme scheme with some variation but not much. And then that, because of the historical importance of Shakespeare, that got picked up and transferred throughout English literary history all the way down to at least the late 19th century. Um, in other cultures, including German language poetry, it's not quite so firm because in English, the rhymes always tend to be masculine, that is, end on an accented syllable. In German, with unaccented syllables at the end of most verbs, uh, it's much more difficult to do that. That will be a factor in what we're talking about. And that's an important question, but not for the reason that is immediate, that is, what, what are we talking about, but for, some another, for another reason that I'll talk about in a little while. Okay. Um, the, as I said, almost 60 poems written in about 15 days, 25 in five days or four days, and then um, because it was an extraordinary month, a cluster of much longer poems finishing a sequence that he had begun 10, 15 years before, and then a full book written in the voice of a young worker, and then another 29 sonnets, plus, as I said, a few he didn't keep. This is all in one month. It is, in my opinion, my knowledge, the greatest explosion of literary creativity we have recorded. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, I'm slow. He wrote him quickly. I've been translating for more than 50 years, and we'll come back to that in a while. Do you speak German fluently? Um, probably not fluently, but my, um, my second language after English was German, and I uh, was fortunate to have wonderful teachers. Uh, and again, I'll comment a little bit more about some of them in a while. But he's, uh, the German is my father's first language, though he had forgotten it or denied it because he was six years old speaking only German when he went to school in Minnesota in 1914. Hmm. Not a good language to be speaking in 1914 when you go to school for the first time and the war is about to break out. So he forgot it, uh, later tried to teach me a little bit, uh, but more importantly convinced me that when I had to learn a second language, I learned German at his suggestion rather than Russian. Hmm. Now, today I'm not sure whether that was a good decision or not, but that doesn't matter. Well, given the fact that you did this book, I'd say it was a good decision. So, the um, My German got better when I was fortunate to have a Fulbright grant to live in Germany for a year at the Universität Tübingen in South Germany, and there married a German-speaking woman, uh, complicated history. Again, uh, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that, but for the next five, six, seven years. Uh, German was our primary language. My daughter's first language was German. Her son's first language is German. So it's not fluent, but it's it's okay. You'll hear it in a little while. Sure. And those of you who speak German can say, oh God, he does not do as well as he imagines. Hmm. Um, but let's, that's, that's a lot of stuff. And, and I want to start very simply because it's been a hard year, the pandemic, and within the last week, a new war. And we don't know where that will go. And I want to start, because today is today, with pleasure. It's late morning here, but I think we can start with breakfast. Okay. And a poem about eating and eating fruit. And Rilke being Rilke, he's going to ask implicitly, what does it mean to eat? 
how often when we're sitting down do we think about what it means to do this thing that we're doing? We know, of course, but can we describe that process in language? So I'll start with, with in the middle of the sequence of 55, 59 poems, in the 13th poem in the first part. Here we go, in English first, so that all of you out there will understand. And we'll, we'll shift back and forth between German and English because too much poetry is too much, and sometimes at the same time you want to hear what the poet himself, Rilke, had to say. Here it is in English. Ripe banana, apple, pear, gooseberry, all this speaks death and life into the mouth. I fear. Read it on a child's cheeks when she tastes them. This starts where you can't see. In your mouths do names first linger, then let go. Where once words were, treasures flow. From the fruit flesh surprisingly set free. What you call apple, dare to say, this sweetness that first makes itself thick, so when it's lightly lifted up in taste, it can be clear, transparent, and awake, sunny, earthy, double-tongued, elastic. Oh, experience, feeling, joy, fantastic. And as Locke knows, I can see the smile on his face. He notices that I've paid tribute to our longtime friend and mentor, Robert Bly, who died recently because, unusually, I snitched a line, a word, in this translation from Bly. Hmm. And I'll turn there first just to pay tribute to Robert. Of course. And this is from his translation of Kabir, great medieval poet. And he says, Knowing nothing shuts the iron gates. The new love opens them. The sound of the gates opening wakes the beautiful woman, asleep. Kabir says, fantastic, don't let a chance like this go by. And I can see Locke almost ready to read the whole poem with me because I'm sure he knows it by heart. Uh, I've always loved that last <laughs> line. And I, I've tried to live my life that way, you know, ever since I found out about that line. <laughs> And this is Rilke's point here, exactly yeah. what he's saying. He says, I don't care if you can articulate what you mean by food, by the, the taste. The, uh, an intellectual might, might talk about that forever. He just says, fantastic. And at the same time, recognizing, as he will throughout the sequence of sonnets, that we're talking about, as we eat, we're talking about living and dying. Mm -hmm. We transform that food into something different and we will transform ourselves into something different as well. Um, let me pay tribute to Rainer Marie Rilke as well and, and let you hear the, the German. Voller Apfel, Birne und Banane, Stachelbeere, alles dieses spricht Tod und Leben in den Mund. Ich ahne, lest es einem Kind vom Angesicht, wenn es ihr schmeckt. Dies kommt von weit. Wird euch langsam namenlos im Munde? Wo sonst Worte waren, fließen Funde, aus dem Fruchtfleisch überrascht befreit. Wagt zu sagen, was ihr Apfel nennt, diese Süße, die sich erst verdichtet, um im Schmecken leise aufgerichtet, klar zu werden, wach und transparent, doppeldeutig, sonnig, erdig, 
hiesig. Oh, Erfahrung, Fühlen, Freude, riesig. I enjoyed hearing it in German. I, one of the questions that occurred to me as you've been reading this is, how would you characterize the way that you translate Rilke as opposed to other translations that you've read? Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's that, a very good question and really central to the 50 years that I spent doing this. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'll even leap ahead of myself. No, I won't. I'll come back I'm to it. Sorry to keep no, 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 not at all. It, it's, there's a specific example which we'll come back to. Um, most, because of the importance of Rilke's poetry, this book and then another book which I should mention right here and now, and that is the long ones that he was writing at the same time and begun earlier and couldn't finish, um, they're so important intellectually that most translators start by wanting to get the ideas right. And because these are sonnets, and you've asked about the form of the sonnet, it's a bear to try and respect what he's doing, and one has to, I think, um, to get the form in some way at least implicit, if not explicit. Um, so I work hard on the ideas. Believe me, I, I think I understand the sonnets, and in some cases I can say to almost any translator, you missed that one because you didn't understand the subtlety of that word. And probably people could say that of me as well. But really my goal was to make of these poems the extraordinary music that they are in German. Hmm. Most people, many people, say, oh, German, it's this sort of harsh language. This is not what you're hearing with Rilke. No. Rilke is, is voller Birne. Banana. This is it's it's beautiful. Now Robert mm. translated a lot. Yes. How would you characterize his translations of Rilke? Aha. Um, he always Robert in his work as a translator, and of course one of his great gifts to us as a nation and as a group of writers working together and people who love writing. Um, he always wanted to get the the surprise, the complexity, the magic across. And so sometimes he, he really violated wildly what the language was. And, and, and Robert did two things with translating Rilke. One of them extraordinarily good, one of them... Uh, I'll, so comment good. On, well, yeah. I'll comment on it. All right. um, the first one is Rilke's a 19th century poet at the beginning of his career. He's born in 1875. He's very famous very early and, and writes some, some beautiful sort of mystical poems, but they are much too lush musically. And Robert took some of those and got rid of the fancy rhymes and the, the emphatic rhythms and meters and made them into something like the poetry Robert Bly was trying to write at that time. Mm -hmm. And this is extraordinarily important for American poetry and for, for Robert Bly and for Rilke. Um, here, it's important to say that, that, that Robert in 1961 or 1962, when he publishes his first poem, which I was going to bring, actually, but then they finally think I didn't bring it, uh, publishes a poem in a, in a British magazine quickly edited by his close friend Donald Hall. Yeah. And it, it's, um, it's a chorale in seven stanzas, I remember, something like that. 
and it is it is very musical, very artificially what musical. What book is it in? Um, it's it's I don't know that it's I in have a, book. a lot of books. Uh, it is published in again a, a, a little magazine that Donald Hall started at Oxford, and then it gets picked up by the Paris Review, hmm. and that's usually listed as his first formal trans uh, publication. It's not. Donald Hall published it earlier, and it is it, it is of the sort of musical poetry of the end of the 19th century and the worst of the early 20th century poets. And Bly recognized, maybe even as he was doing it, but certainly soon thereafter, that this is not what he wanted to do. And so in his magazine, the 50s at that point, later 60s, 70s, um, and thousands, um, he, he began to argue against that sort of rhythmic um, metrical poetry and therefore cursed the sonnets and said, we will not do these poems in sonnet form. And so he makes them into something quite different. He translated, I think, what, the first ten of the sonnets to Orpheus, and then stopped, hmm. which I thought was a good idea. Mm-hmm. So I love his early work, and I can actually do that, and that's probably worth doing here a lot. Um, a couple of... I recognize that signature in the beginning You there, do, I'm sure. That handwriting. One of his most famous... Um, translation of Rilke is this one. I'll give you a couple of lines in German again so that you have mm-hmm. a sense of what Rilke is doing. Sure. Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen, die sich über die Dinge ziehen. Ich werde den letzten vielleicht nicht vollbringen, aber versuchen will ich ihn. Ich kreise um Gott, um den uralten Turm, und ich kreise Jahrtausende lang. Und ich weiß noch nicht, bin ich, eine Fal- bin ich ein Falke, Ein Sturm oder ein großer Gesang. So you can hear that the way that he goes like that, da 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 da. Bly tra- transforms that as he translates it. I live my life in growing orbits, yeah. which move out over the things of the world. Perhaps I can never achieve the last, but that will be my attempt. I am circling around God, around the ancient tower, and I have been circling for a thousand years, and I still don't know if I am a falcon or a storm. Or a great song. That's the one I know. And, uh, <laughs> that's the one most people know, I think, yeah. who have a casual interest. Um, boy, does that sound like Robert too, as well. Yes. You know? yeah, and and so, so Robert has done that, um, and our the first the first literally the first five minutes I met Robert Bly in nineteen seventy one, if I'm not mistaken, in Worcester, Massachusetts, we were at a. Um, sort of a pub at the basement of a building on Assumption College campus in Worcester, and we fought immediately mm-hmm. about translating the sonnets. He said, you can't make them musical. They have to be... And I say, no, Robert, you're missing the point. With the early poems, you've done brilliant work. But when you've tried to do these, something's not quite right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I've never asked him why he stopped translating them, because, but I think it's that, that principle, that he just did not know how to do that. What's interesting to me, and you know this as well as I do, Locke, that, that Robert moved away in his early work from that musical. He created a different type of music, and then later decided, oh, maybe it's not so bad, and went back and started imitating other forms, mostly from the, from the East and Middle East. And that was, of course, quite fascinating uh, to watch him do that. We, we, we talked at great length about music and form in poetry. I, I remember vividly uh, in, in my wife, Ann Arbors, in my first apartment in, in, in um, Beloit, Wisconsin, 
in, in the kitchen. We, we talk maybe 45 minutes to an hour about what one can do about form in translation and poetry. And, and we had reached a, an agreement um, about what we could do, but, but we still, on the, on the sonnets, never really saw eye to eye. And that's okay. What he did was he made Rilke available from the early works, which are important. And then other people, including myself, tried to do that with the later works. Well, Robert songs. loved a good argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always. Yes. Um, let's, we've started with breakfast. Let me go on a couple more Please. because this is, as you start, started out by saying, it's cold out today. I, yeah. I got minus 12 at my place this mm, morning. Not that cold here. Yeah. And s snowing yesterday, but today a beautiful, beautiful day. And um, so I thought maybe we'd start with spring. Because, you know, okay. forget the war, forget the pandemic, let's get out of here, get these masks off. And uh, we're sitting here not wearing masks this morning, thank goodness, Yeah. and turn to spring. Here is the second, in the, in the first uh, book of the sonnets, the 21st sonnet. English first again, so you understand what's happening. Spring is here again. The earth is like a child with poems she has memorized, many, oh, many. For the trial of long learning, she takes the prize. Her teacher was strict. We liked the white in the beard of the old man. Now green and blue, getting their names right, we'll ask her to tell us. She can, she can. Earth, you lucky one, now that you're free, play with the children. Oh, happy Earth, we long to catch you, the happiest will succeed. Oh, what the teacher has taught her, so many things, and what's imprinted in roots and long, difficult stems. She sings, she sings. So here is this, this praise of spring. Remember, it's, it's now the, the second, the third probably of February. So we're right now in 1921. We're in the hundredth year, almost exactly, just a couple of weeks past. And it's, it, it's winter. I'll talk more about what that winter meant to him, um, but he's suddenly waiting for, listening to, and wanting to have spring come. Frühling ist wieder gekommen. Die Erde ist wie ein Kind, das Gedichte weiß. Viele, oh viele. Für die Beschwerde langen Lernens bekommt sie den Preis. Streng war ihr Lehrer. Wir mochten das Weiße an dem Barte des alten Manns. Nun, wie das Grüne, das Blaue heiße, dürfen wir tragen. Sie kann's, sie kann's. Erde die Freiheit, du Glückliche, spiele nun mit den Kindern. Wir wollen dich fangen, fröhliche Erde, dem Frosten gelingt's. Oh, was der Lehrer sie lehrte, das viele, und was gedrückt steht in Wurzeln, in langen, schwierigen Stämmen. Sie singt's, sie singt's. What does spring bring to us, Rilke asks, and what can we learn from our experience, from, learn from Robert for that matter, mm -hmm. learn from Rilke, and that's one of the great tributes that Rilke is doing here, is making here, is saying, listen to what's around you, pay attention, don't become self-obsessed and keep going. Rebirth, creation, and recreation. You want another spring one? Sure. All right, let's do another spring one. This time I'll do it first in German just so you hear the, the language and then the English and let it go there. This is a second spring poem from the second book, 
number 25 in the second book. Schon hoch hörst du der ersten Harken Arbeit, wieder den menschlichen Takt in den verhaltenen Stille der starken Vorfühlingserde. Unabgeschmackt scheint dir das Kommende, jenes so oft dir schon gekommene scheint dir zu kommen wieder wie Neues. Immer erhofft nahmst du es niemals, es hat dich genommen. Selbst die Blätter durchwinterte Eichen scheinen haben ein künftiges Braun. Manchmal geben sich Lüfte ein Zeichen. Schwarz sind die Sträuche, doch Haufen von Dünger lagen aus sattere Schwarz in den Auen. Jede Stunde, die hingeht, wird jünger. Now, listen. Already you hear the throng of the first rakes, the beat of man's drumming back in the muffled silence of strong early spring earth. All that is coming seems to want tasting. All that has come, come so often already, seems to be new now that it's coming again. You've hoped it would come, but not once did you take it. It always took you. Even in leaves of the winter-worn oak trees at evening, some future brown is revealed. Now and then there's a hint of a breeze. The shrubbery is black, but heaps of dung lie like a more fertile black in the field. Each hour that passes grows more young. I like that. That's a great line. <laughs> grows more young. That's pretty yeah. cool. As you're reading... Um, I was wondering, you know, you you finally published this. When you go over these sonnets in your translations, do you sometimes say, "Oh, I wish I could do that one again," or <laughs> work on it some more? Or oh, god, good question, lot. Yeah. Um, as as I mentioned before, my daughter's first language is German. Her husband is German Iranian and and fully fluent in German. Mm -hmm. um, they live in London, so they are still close to Germany and are there often. Sure. Um, this past, again, working years and years and years, I, uh, I have still my first, ver I have first, my first versions of these poems in many cases, and I did probably four complete translations. So the answer is yes. Do I change? I do. Yeah. And as we were preparing, knowing that we were going to, to publish this this year, I gave the, the book to my son, to my uh, son-in-law. Yeah. He read it through. Uh, commented on a couple of the German passages, but not much on my English. My daughter, with whom I'm quite close, read it and said, oh, I got about seven or eight things that I want to question. And so we had really good arguments, the first real literary arguments we've ever had. And I'd say I accepted about four or five of them because she had something that I either hadn't picked up on or that she had picked up a little bit better. And some yeah. I said, no, 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 you're wrong on that one, or I believe you're wrong on that one, yeah. and changed it. Mm -hmm. They changed. I'll come back to the central change in a little while. Because there is a big one that that was extraordinarily important. What I thought maybe we would do is talk a little bit about um, about the creation of these poems by Rilke, because that's um, it's not just the speed; it's other stuff as well. Uh, the poems were about recreation, in the way that spring recreates the year after winter. Rilke's born in 1875 in Prague. What country is Prague in? Czechoslovakia? Or no? Czechoslovakia no longer exists. Well, 
Is it in the Czech Republic? Thank you. Okay. All right. So, so my point, of course, is what you already know. It's now the Czech Republic. All the time we were growing up, it was Czechoslovakia. Sure. I'm glad I remembered that one. Anyway. <laughs> and before that, Rilke once was called the best German poet of his generation. He said, I'm not German. Hmm. Right? Like Kafka, he was born in Prague, which is a dominant Czech-speaking city and, of course, has changed, and at that point was part of the Austrian Empire, which, you know, I don't think about it. For my first wife, who was born quite near to Prague, uh, it was Sudetenland, mm. okay? And what we would call Bohemia. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where are you from when, you're, when, when he's asked that? That's not easy. Um, it, complex mother-father relationship, his mother thought he was a girl, <laughs> dressed him in dresses and would say, is little is little Rainier Renee out there? Would she like to come in? No, I want. No, you can't come in. Put on your dress. His oh father, God. yeah, his well, father. He, he might thrive in today's culture. So we'll see. Mm. Who knows? His father was militaristic, and that was hard. You can imagine the conflict between those two. Um, he Rilke. Uh, had the extraordinary experience of meeting an extraordinary woman, Lou Andreas Salome. Do you know the name? I did not. You know the name, I believe. Um, let's see. Th this, is gonna be, this is going to be very humbling because you'll <laughs> find out what I don't know. But go ahead. You know the name Nietzsche? Yeah. His lover. You okay. know the name Freud? I've heard of that guy. His lover. Yeah. Wow, oh, she got around, huh? She got around. Well, yeah. almost certainly with Freud. We're not quite certain. Okay. Nietzsche, for sure. Yeah. And then Rilke. Hmm. He's about 22, 23. She's about 35. Yeah. She is half Russian. Hmm. And she says, let's go to Russia. Hmm. And they do. Hmm. And so Rilke learns some Russian. They meet Tolstoy, rather strangely. And, and Lou becomes um, a mentor for the rest of his life. Hmm. Um, the, the, she's married, of course. I mean, what difference would that make in this world? But uh, the first, I think they take two trips to Russia. I think the first time her husband goes with them. But, you know, life was more complicated than, than we knew. Hmm. And um, so they, they go off. Then, then he comes back to Germany and moves to the North German coast to an artist colony. And there are two women there that he falls in love with. One very quickly marries the head of that artist colony, and the other one, Rilke marries. Um, the first one that he doesn't marry, uh, who's, they're both, they're all artists, they're all artist colony. The first one gets, gets pregnant, gives birth to a child and dies. And so one of the great griefs in his life is the woman I didn't marry but loved is dead. And he writes an extraordinarily beautiful requiem for her. His own wife has a child, but they're both artists, and you know, if you're an artist, how can you take care of a kid? So Rilke really is is involved in Ruth, his daughter's life, but not much, and his wife is also not much at times involved. They they send the daughter off to the grandparents. Now, as you know a lot, but others wouldn't know on this on this uh, podcast, I spent a lot of time in China. Most of our Chinese friends regard their grandparents as their parents because their parents were doing other things. And so Rilke's behavior, by our standards, would be a little bit strange, perhaps, but that's just how it worked. Mm -hmm. So he, he has this child, um, stays married to, the, to his wife, 
uh, has numerous other relationships which are clearly not intolerable on both fronts. I don't know enough about them and I don't really care to talk about them. Um, but, but he goes to Paris and becomes the secretary for a man named Rodin. Mm -hmm. That name you know. I believe he is an artist, correct? I, yes, a great sculptor. Oh, my mother would be proud of me. I yeah, got it. We no, got it right there. Whew. Okay. <laughs> He's publishing regularly. He's 25 years old, 26 years old, mm -hmm. publishing in his, in his 20s a novel. Uh, many poems becomes quite famous. He is successful. Mm -hmm. In those years, you didn't survive financially by publishing in most cases unless you were a popular novelist. Um, he has patrons. Uh, and... In about 1910, I might be off by a couple of years on that, he begins a series of poems that I've alluded to already in Duino, which is the castle Duino down in the Adriatic Sea, uh, right outside of Italy. And then war happens in 1914. He's German language, not German. He's Austrian. It is annexed. What happens if you are of that, what happens this week if you are suddenly in Donbass, if you are Ukrainian but Russian, if you are, what are you? So Rilke gets trapped. He is drafted. He serves in the war, though he's old enough that he's not really serving. He's doing some clerical work. But still, he's trapped in Germany, and he does not want to be there. Again, I started to say earlier, somebody said once, you're German. He says, no, my language is German. One of my languages is German. He's, he knows quite a bit of Russian. He's fluent in French, um, but I'm not German. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so for 10 years, he doesn't write. He, he writes, but he really doesn't write much. He cannot finish the long sequence of poems that he wants to, that he starts at Duino Castle. He just can't finish it. Finally, the war and the pandemic, keep in mind, we're all aware now that we weren't two years ago that there was a pandemic in 1918. And it was transformative for that continent. Is that the Spanish flu? The Spanish so flu. So-called Spanish flu. So-called Spanish flu, really the American flu. You know yeah. that, do you? Yeah. Uh, apparently I don't. It, so, it may yeah. well have started here right. and was taken there by the military. Mm -hmm. But Spanish flu, because they were neutral in the war and therefore published information about their medical situation. Germany, England, France did not. And so all the stories of flu were coming from, from Spain. So it became, of course, the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's finally, the pandemic is more or less over. The war is definitely over. He's stuck in Germany. Mm -hmm. He can't get out because you can't, he's not German, but he's German. He's certainly not French. What is he going to do? So he gets an invitation to do some readings in Switzerland and off he goes. And with another female friend, he's walking in a small city in the middle of Switzerland and they're at a barber shop. And they see a, a picture of a, a sort of an old, decrepit building, a castle called, but scarcely a castle. And um, they say, what about that? And, and uh, the person said, well, it's, they're trying to rent it to somebody, but nobody wants to take it. So he takes it. And a patron of his fixes it up, and he moves in in the end of 1921. Uh, Muzot, M-U-Z-O-T. And that becomes the home, his home for the rest of his life. Now, castle, but no electricity, no running water, three floors, but sort of one room, one room, one and a half rooms, um, scarcely luxurious, but isolated and a place to live, and he can settle. Does the building still exist? Yes. Do you know? Have and you I seen have pictures not seen of it? it. I, well, I've seen many, many, many pictures of it, oh. um, but I have never been there. I, mm -hmm. I, my one, 
in when I was living in Germany, one couldn't easily get there. Hmm. I did go very close to it because I went to his grave on the 49th anniversary of his death hmm. in 19, probably 64, 65, I guess it would have been. Hmm. He died on 29 December 1926. So yes. But what I, was his cause of death? Uh, leukemia. Uh, oh, a form of leukemia is the probable diagnosis. They couldn't diagnose it, and he got sicker and sicker and died yeah. at 51. Yeah. Yep. So he moves in. His girlfriend, his female friend, girlfriend's the wrong term, his female friend um, sees a, a little sketch in a shop in that town that they saw the castle advertised and hangs it next to his writing desk in the new castle. She heads out in November. 2nd of February, I've already said, he starts. And what he starts is looking at that, at that sketch. Hmm. And it's a picture of Orpheus hmm. with two um, deer and a bird and a tree hanging over his head. And he just starts all of a sudden, boom. And in the next four days, he writes the first <coughs> 25 poems and then a few others. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's all in one month. And then he, he finishes those. He starts again on the long poems, the Duino poems. He finishes most of them. Then he writes the book that I mentioned in the voice of a young, of a young worker. Then he comes back to the sonnets, writes another 20, 29 or those. And then he writes a last um, elegy of the Duino elegies, basing it on a very famous painting by Picasso Le Saltimbanque, The Acrobats. And then he's done, about the 27th, 28th of February. All this in one month. Extraordinary. Rilke's burst of energy is remarkable, but it's also not surprising. And let me go there for a second, because it's part of the modernist movement. I can read this from the first few pages of my afterthoughts in the book. He begins to write on 2nd February 1922. That same day in Paris, what happens? Sylvia Beach publishes James Joyce, James Joyce's book, Ulysses. The same week in Switzerland also, T.S. Eliot has just completed his draft of The Wasteland. Okay. Right? Which, edit, which had been edited by Ezra Pound, uh, and then it will appear in October. Marianne Moore has recently published Poetry, I, too, dislike it. There are things more important than all this stuff. Um, Marcel Proust will die. He is almost finished, but never finishes A la Recherche du Temps Perdu in Search of Time Past, depending on how you translate it. William Carlos Williams, whose works you know, is writing the first American poems, if you want to call them that. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. The Harlem Renaissance is beginning to bloom. You know, of course, of Langston Hughes, just becoming famous at that time. Thomas Mann, the greatest German novelist of the century, is working to complete his major work, Der Zauberberg. It's extraordinary. In this single year, modernism begins to happen. But it's modernism in a larger sense, too. Locke. Physics, what's happening. Einstein has just published... 1906, his first major works, and his work continuing through 1917. In 1930, 
Here's one I'm wondering whether you know. Kurt Gödel? I did not. It is a mathematical proof that you cannot prove mathematical proofs. <laughs> it is the most important mathematical uh, piece of work in the 20th century. I almost can't follow that through, but uh, well, I, I get it. But our, our, our notion of mathematics is that you can make proofs. That's what we all learned in geometry. Right. He proves that you can't prove make proofs because they are all dependent upon assumptions which we have no knowledge of. Oh, well, I like his way of thinking. <laughs> yes, I do. I'll come back to it yeah. in 10 seconds. All right. In, in philosophy, Heidegger is work, exactly that same time is working on his masterpiece, Sein und Zeit, Time and Being. It's a new internationalism as well. Europe is tired of Europe, and so they turn have been turning for most of a century, but now even more acutely toward the East. So the existence of the Tao Te Ching, of Taoist thought, and the critique of Western philosophy, Plato's formalism, Aristotle's law of the excluded middle. So now I have to ask you a question, and we'll get to the heart of this whole uh -oh. talk. Yeah, are you Lot Kiermaier? I believe so. Were you Lot Kiermaier yesterday? Yes. Are you the same Lot Kiermaier today that you were yesterday? No. I've changed let's, incrementally let's in ways that I can't that describe again. it. I got it. <laughs> Aristotle's... I'm, I'm not trying to be difficult. Good. No, no, you're yeah. exactly... This is what's fun. I used to teach with my closest friend, a, a, a huge biologist, 350 pounds, 6'4", 6'5", John Junk. And we would always start our classes with a Taoist principle, and I would say, are you John? And he would say, yes. And I would say, am I John? And I would say, yes. And I would say, are we the same? And he would say, no. And then I would say what I just said to you. Are you John Junk? Were you John Junk yesterday? All right. Aristotle has what's called the law of the excluded middle. This is the basis of most mathematics and philosophy in our culture. Either A is A. Either If A is A, it is either B or it is not B. You cannot both be A and B be and not be, the, they can't, either are or are not. It's the middle is excluded. You cannot be both and not be. Taoist principle, the Tao Te Ching begins, Tao Ka Tao Fei Chang Tao. The Tao that is the Tao is not always the Tao. Hmm. Ming Ka Ming, Fei Chang Ming. The name that is name is not always the name. Hmm. So once you let that enter Western philosophy, Aristotle has some trouble. And as I mentioned earlier, when we have um, the, the whole notion of Kurt Gödel proving that proofs can't be proven, mm -hmm. we're in a different universe. Relativity, Einstein again, is here. Right. So um, this is critical for Rilke for all sorts of reasons. They're part of this new modernism. And I'm going to come back to it because it's really central to why I worked on these things. Mm -hmm. But um, I want to go back and, and look first at the, at the myth of Orpheus, because that, of course, is central to this book of Sonnets of Orpheus. Mm -hmm. Okay, please continue. You all know the myth of Orpheus. Of Orpheus. You know at least some of it, right? Orpheus is who? A singer? You know, you're not going to have to, you can't rely on me. I can't. All right, we'll All just right. try it. And, uh, or, Orpheus, ahead. the great singer, given this, this power by, by Apollo, the great singer of Greek mythology, he has a wife, Eurydice. Mm -hmm. She dies very young. And he grieves. And he says, I have, to, I have to have my wife back. So he goes down into the underworld. 
And he goes to the ruler of the underworld and says, I want Eurydice back. And they say, forget it. No way. She's dead. He says, let me sing to you. Let me play my lyre for you. And he plays. And, and the head of the underworld says, wow. A little bit more, please. He plays a little bit more and he says, take her. If you want her back on the earth above, she's yours. But you have to lead her out. And you may not look back to see her until she's above the surface of the underworld. Mm -hmm. And so he, he, he does. He, he obeys that. And he, he walks and he's almost at the surface. And she stumbles behind him. And of course, he turns around and she's gone. She's gone. So Eurydice is gone. So he grieves and he sings and he sings and he sings. He remains the great singer, but the myth of Orpheus remains of the only creature ever permitted to bring someone out of the underworld. Mm -hmm. Much later, a group of women, the Maenads, long story there, I won't tell it, uh, he offends them and he, they tear him apart. They set upon him and literally tear his body apart. And his head is thrown into the ocean or the river, depending on which version of the myth, and it floats out to sea, still singing. Mm -hmm. And as Rilke will say later, it is because his head was still singing that we have the ability, the possibility, to sing ourselves. And that's what we are as singers. We are only followers of Orpheus. Mm -hmm. So let me look at the first three of these poems, and you'll hear the myth coming, and you'll hear a little bit more about Rilke's life. Again, I think the English is helpful first, so you know where we're going. The first sonnet in the first part. There rose a tree, O oh, more than mere uprising, O oh, Orpheus sings, O oh, tall tree in the ear. And all grew still, but stillness more surprising saw new beginnings, signs, and change appear. Animals of silence thronged from the clear and loosened woods from nest and den. And it was evident that they had grown quiet then, not from deceit and not from any fear, but from hearing. Bellow, screeching, roar seemed small inside their hearts. And where as this drew near, hardly a hut had been to greet their thronging, a shelter built of darkest longing with just one door, whose doorposts tremble. There you created temples all could hear. Da stieg ein Baum, o reine Übersteigung, o Orpheus singt o hoher Baum im Ohr, und alles schwieg, doch selbst in der Verschweigung ging neuer Anfang, Wink und Wandlung vor. Tiere aus Stille drangen aus dem klaren, gelösten Wald von Lager und Genist, und da ergab sich, dass sie nicht aus List und nicht aus Angst in sich so leise waren, sondern aus Hören. Brunnen, Schrei, Gerühr schien klein in ihren Herzen, und wo eben kaum eine Hütte war, dies zu empfangen, ein Unterschlupf aus dunkelstem Verlangen, mit einem Zugang, dessen Pfosten beben, da schufst du ihnen Tempel im Gehör. So here's suddenly the tree. You can see the sketch behind him on his wall, right, in at the castle. 
um, because there's the tree, there's the, the animals, there are the, the deer that are hiding there, there's the tree itself, which is hanging over him in the picture. He just somehow picked up on that and started writing, and there it went. And what he created, as Orpheus had, was something that could be heard. But of course, if we have Orpheus, we have to have Eurydice. And she was almost a girl, and went from here from this linked happiness of song and lyre, and through her spring veils sparkled clear as fire and made herself a bed inside my ear and slept in me, and all things were her sleep. The trees I had so long admired, this distance I could feel, the meadow felt so deep, and that astonishment of mine that she inspired. She slept the world. Oh, singing God, what kept you from creating her so she might first desire to be awake? See, she arose and slept. Where is her death? Will you have time to boast of finding this motif before your songs expired? Where does she sink from me, a girl almost? Und fast ein Mädchen war's und ging hervor aus diesem einigen Glück von Sang und Leier und glänzte klar durch ihr Frühlingsschleier und machte sich ein Bett in meinem Ohr und schlief in mir und alles war ihr Schlaf. Die Bäume, die ich je bewundert, diese fühlbare Ferne, diese gefühlte Wiese und jenes Staunen, das mich selbst betraf. Sie schlief die Welt. Singend, oh Gott, wie hast du sie vollendet, dass sie nicht begehrte, erst wach zu sein. Sie, sie entstand und schlief. Wo ist ihr Tod? O oh, wirst du dies Motiv erfinden noch, eh sich dein Lied verzehrte? Wo singt sie hin aus mir? Hm. Ein Mädchen fast. So almost a girl. So here is now Rilke channeling, call it what you will, Orpheus. He's become Orpheus. The tree is in his ear. He is now picked up on Eurydice. But Rilke is also thinking of something else as he, as he channels Orpheus. He is thinking of a friend whose daughter at 19 has just died. Very young. Mm -hmm. A woman, a girl, who was a brilliant dancer as a young child, and then some disease beset her, and she became much heavier, so she couldn't dance. So she began to sing and to paint, and then she couldn't even move. And so she became, you know, just this, 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 this body, and then died. Mm -hmm. And so she becomes his Eurydice, the Orpheus's Eurydice for the sequence of poems. Her name is strange, Vera Ockerman Knup, but uh, very much a part of his life. And he wrote almost immediately to her mother saying, I have written these poems for your daughter. And the whole book is dedicated to her. The third poem, and then I'll stop with this little sequence, and maybe we should take a break about sure. that time. Mm -hmm. Rilke addresses not Orpheus, just as Orpheus, not Eurydice as Eurydice, but the whole question of love, the whole question of what it means to be Orpheus the musician, to be the voice of song, the voice of poetry for all humans. And he says, hmm, a god can do it. But tell me how a man can follow him through the slender lyre. His self is split. Where heart roads cross, there stands no temple for Apollo's fire. To sing as you would teach is not to yearn, not strive for something when it lasts to cheese. To sing is to be here. The God does it with ease. But when are we, and when will he turn toward our whole being, both 
the earth and stars. This isn't it, young man, your love, even if your voice bursts from your mouth when you begin. Learn to forget that you sang out. That disappears. True singing takes a different kind of breath, a breath for nothing, a whirling in the God, a wind, a wind. So yes, okay, Orpheus, fine, nice. I'm glad you're you know, glad you got her back, almost got her back. But this isn't what it's about. Hmm. There is something that transcends that. Ein Gott vermachs, a God can do it. Wie aber sagt mir so ein Mann ihm folgen durch die schmale Leier? Sein Sinn ist Zwiespalt. An der Kreuzung zweier Herzwege steht kein Tempel für Apoll. Gesang, wie du ihn lernst, ist nicht Begehr, nicht Werbung um ein endlich noch Erreichtes. Gesang ist Dasein, für den Gott ein leichtes. Wann aber sind wir und wann wendet er an unser Sein, die Erde und die Sterne? Dies ist's nicht, Jüngling, dass du liebst, wenn auch die Stimme dann den Mund dir aufstößt. Lerne vergessen, dass du aufsangst. Das verrinnt. In Wahrheit singen ist ein anderer Hauch. Ein Hauch um nichts, ein wenig Gott, ein Wind. So Rilke is now moved beyond the immediate and moved to uh, the whole question of singing. And of all the work you asked me before, Locke, mm -hmm. did anything change in the translations? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gesang ist Dasein. What do you say? Gesang, song. Ist is Dasein. Uh, sein is being. Dasein is present. Presence, da, being present, being there, being here. How do you translate that? Here are some, there are probably 150 translations of the sonnets to Orpheus. Song is existence. David Young and M.D. Herder Norton, one of the first translators, uh, they put it that Song is existence. Singing is being, says Al Poulin. Song is reality, says Stephen Mitchell, one of the most famous translators in many. You know that. I know and, that guy. Yeah. And, and Robert Bly, to write is to be alive. Mm -hmm. Whoa! Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? Well, <laughs> Robert said, and I had, you know, I don't think I'd ever read this until fairly recently. I, I knew his translations, but I hadn't read all his commentary on Rilke. He says, the heavy syllable can't be reproduced in translation. Gesang ist Dasein. Ah, ah. He says, if we translate literally singing and being, the result is pitiful. Mm. That's Robert. Sneer. Mm. You didn't get it right, you, Al Poulin, who said mm. singing is being. No good. Uh-uh. My first version, and for many, many years, was to sing is to exist. Gesang, to sing. It's not, it's singing is, I mean, the translation is right. Singing is being. But as Bly's, Bly's right, he says, you can't, that's too easy in terms of the sound. So, all right, to sing is to exist. That's eh, not right good either. Now, I finally changed in the last year. To sing is to be here. I'm thinking mm -hmm. of existential philosophy. Mm. To sing is to be here. It's not enough, Robert, it's not enough to say to write poetry because that minimizes the mythology of Orpheus, in my opinion. But nonetheless, every, every version is different. One of the most important lines and one of the hardest to translate. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So let's take a break here. Sure. And then we'll come back and talk about a little bit more about learning about the sonnets and why I spent 50 years translating them, share a 
few favorites, talk a little bit about the philosophical implications of the poems, and then be done. Thank you, Lockyermeyer, well, for inviting welcome. me to do this. And um, I'm enjoying it. I'm, of course, learning a lot. And uh, I might be able to insert some music in this break later That'd on. That would be great. Um, so we'll see if that happens. And uh, I have a, a little Robert Bly poem I'm going to get to read that All I right. just discovered Good. that I love. But um, so we'll be back in a minute.
Okay. So we are back. Um, I'm here with my special guest and good friend, John Rosenwald, talking about the poetry of Rilke and his most recent, or this book that John has just published, The Sonnets to Orpheus and uh, Rainier Maria Rilke. Did that's I do good. better? Rainier Maria know, Well, yeah, you good. know, it's not my nobody thing. Ever, nobody ever gets the first two. The, right? I don't, that's for sure. How can somebody get this book, John? Um, email, uh, email me, or actually better to, better, to, better to go on Facebook and find Ann Arbor. Okay, your wife. My wife, yeah. And, uh, okay, and then they can get it through Ann. Through us, yeah, that's very easy. Okay, because, you know, when I have musicians on the show, I always want to let people know how they could get their music, and for this, in you, your case, I want them to know how they could get Thank your you. book. Yes, so there, were, there are copies, and I'd be happy to sign one, or inscribe it, or send it to somebody else for them, whatever they'd like. Very easy. I have one, and highly recommend it. So <laughs> thanks. Why don't you continue, John? Well, one question that people often ask me is, how did I learn about the sonnets, and why did you start doing this? And um, and then, of course, why did you spend 50 years translating him, for God's sake? Uh, let me give a little bit about the background, and I'll share a few favorites, and then Locke will have something to say, and we'll do a couple more things and be done. So, in, in may have alluded to this last time I was uh, in the first podcast. Uh, in fall of 63, I was taking a course in German poetry. I was far enough along in my study of German, which I had formally started at the University of Illinois, in 1961, I guess. And at the same time, I was taking a course in creative writing poetry with a man named John Frederick Nims, later editor of Poetry Magazine, without any question, the most famous uh, historical little magazine of American poetry in United States history, the place that uh, The Wasteland and Ezra Pound's early work and many, many other people published and still very much going on today. And Rilke in the middle, sorry, Nims in the middle of that class assigned us for reasons I have no idea to translate Rilke's sixth sonnet in the first part. Okay, so um, what are you going to do? you got to do it. So here's the poem. And uh, this time I'll read the German first so you get a sense of what a good ignorant person like I was mostly at that point about German. Ist der ein Hiesiger? Nein. Aus beiden Reichen erwuchs seine weite Natur. Kundiger Bürger, die Zweige der Weiden, wer die Wurzeln der Weiden erfuhr. Geht ihr zu Bette, so lasst auf dem Tische Brot nicht und Milch nicht, die Toten zieht's. Aber er, der Beschwörende, mische unter der Milde des Augenlids ihre Erscheinung in alles Geschaute. Und der Zauber von Erdrauch und Rauche sei ihm so wahr, wie der klarste Bezug. Nichts kann das gültige Bild ihm verschlimmern, sei es aus Gräbern, sei es aus Zimmern, Rühme er Fingering, Spange und Krug. So, it's, even in the first time, I, I have my initial notes for translating back in 1963. Ist er ein Hiesiger? Is he a here place person? Here place. Here place. A here, here being. So how do you translate that? So somehow I just stumbled on everything else in my translation, the first translation I changed, but does he come from these parts? Hmm. 
Is he from here? But you don't. Mm -hmm. Is he from here? Yeah, but that's not the. That's not colloquial enough. Mm -hmm. Does he come from these parts? No, the breadth of his being arose from both realms, the living and the dead, of course. Mm -hmm. Someone who's known the roots of the willow more skillfully bends the willow's limbs. If you're going to bed, leave on the table no bread, and no milk. It draws the dead. But he, the conjurer, let him be able under the mildness of the eyelid to mix their appearance with all we see here. And for him, let the magic of earth smoke and rue be as real as the logic that's most clear. Nothing can tarnish for him the image that's true. From graves or from rooms, whatever the thing, let him praise bracelet, pitcher, and ring. So here is, here is Rilke, the first real clear statement of a central theme for Rilke and for the sonnets. Praise. Praise. Acknowledge the wonder and the complexity of the world, of life, of all we do. Remember I started the first podcast, some of you, I talked about eating fruit and that extraordinary feeling of recognition that the fruit is not fruit, language doesn't deal with it. It's this burst of all sorts of things, fantastic, as Bly would say, in the mouth as you bite into that fruit. Let me read it again in English so you'll get a sense of that, or at least the last part. Nothing can tarnish for him the image that's true. From graves or from rooms, whatever the thing, let him praise bracelet, pitcher, and ring. Do not assume that only life or death is good. All things need to be praised. Now that's going to be interesting if you start praising death a lot. But it's part of our life. Mm -hmm. And so Rilke says again and again, let's do that. I became involved through this translation. I continued to study German. Um, I had a wonderful experience. Um, I was in the German department one day at Illinois, at the maybe at about the end of that, two semesters later, and I had been offered the opportunity to do honors work in German as a major or a minor. I did that also in English. And this old man comes up to me, 63, 64, and he says, Sind Sie Herr Rosenwald? Are you Mr. Rosenwald? Yes, I am. He says in German, I, I hear that you want to do um, some honors project in, in, in our department. And you want to do it on Rilke? And I said, yes, I do. I would like to do that very much. He said, I won't do that with you. But I would be willing to do it with Thomas Mann and you. Hmm. Why was, wouldn't he do Rilke? Because he didn't know Rilke. Oh, you know, see, he's, he's, that's not his field. I get it. So, so he says, so I, I found out who he was, and he was sort of the dean of the department. And I said, um, as Robert would say, don't let a chance like this go by. Right. So for the next two years, I went to his house one day a week and sat in his kitchen and talked about Thomas Mann. Hmm. Uh, this is a, a, you know, a 63 or 64 year old senior professor. I'm a 23 year old twerp. Yeah. He doesn't know me, but this was, this was just an act of, of, of graciousness on his part. And of course I learned he had known Mann. He had, he showed me the correspondence. Here's, here's my first letter from Thomas Mann. Here's my second letter. Mm -hmm. And then he helped me learn the details and the beauty of Thomas Mann's language. So he didn't help me with Rilke, but he helped me with Rilke. Mm. And through his help, partly I got the Fulbright that I mentioned 
to go to Germany. I began working seriously on the on translating the sonnets. I can show Locke at the moment, but no one else because we're in this. I have a little book, The Sonnets to Orpheus, a, a not a cheaper version, but a sort of public version of the sonnets. May I see it? And I'll show it to Locke, and you'll notice, he'll notice oh. immediately. <laughs> what do you see, Locke? I see a lot of writing. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing has notations throughout the... Yeah, and I know who it belongs to. <laughs> and, uh, wow, very impressive. When did you do this? This was the, the, in right. Germany. Yeah. So that that has been when people say, "What's the first thing you grab if there's a fire?" This book. Yeah. This is my. This is what I carried with me, and okay. every step of the way. It's on a, this. obviously a, a treasured. It, it is item. a treasured thing. It's how I learned about them, and I yeah. co copied some translations, but looked at the formal questions because remember the issue of sonnets is still mm -hmm. very much in front of us. Uh, I copied some notes from the first scholarly commentary I'd read. Uh, it was it's what we did. Mm -hmm. um, and this poem that, that, that John Nims had given me about praising at the end leads to another one. So let me go there and then we'll go somewhere else. <clears throat> this is the one that follows it. And again, central to Rilke's sense of what he should be doing. And it starts out quite simply. Praising, that's it. <laughs> That's what you got to do, baby. Get your attention. Get your attention. Praising, that's it. One appointed to praise, he went out like ore from the stone's silence. His heart, a wine press that fades while pressing for us an unending wine. The press that makes the wine from the grapes may rot, but the wine remains. His heart, a wine press that fades while pressing for us an unending wine. His voice has never found dust in his mouth when the godlike example takes hold and takes shape. All becomes vineyard, all becomes grape, all grown ripe in his sensitive self. Neither the mold on kings in their vaults turns his praise to a lie, nor that from God's a shadow falls. Death is just death. He is one of the messengers who stays and holds far into death's doors bowls of fruit deserving of praise. Mm -hmm. you know, so praising, that's it. Bowls full of fruit deserving of praise. So that's our work here. Mm -hmm. Praise and praise and praise. It reminds me some of the themes I know in Rumi, you know, with praise. You got it. And my, my limited knowledge, but... Uh, no, you're you're, you're, too, you're much too much too shy about well, your knowledge. I know your knowledge. I've watched it well, for years and years and years. If you were going to ask me about the counterculture of the late '60s, <laughs> I, I, I'd be really good. But uh, poetry, yeah, spotty at best. So, so, so Rilke then says, "To praise, we must see." And most of us wander around blind. Mm -hmm. We don't want to see what we don't want to see. We don't even want to see what we want to see. We see something else. And so in the, the, the first poem in the second part that Rilke writes, it's actually in placement, the fifth one in the second part, but it's the first one he wrote after he had finished the, the elegies. He, he, he says, let's acknowledge the complexity of the world, but do something about it. Mm -hmm. So it's a very simple poem on one level and not at all simple on another for a couple of reasons, which I'll come to. It's a picture of a flower. 
It's an, 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 an anemone. You know the name, if not the flower itself. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's going to talk about the way that flower has a muscle. Right? All flowers have muscles, otherwise they can't do it. We don't really call them muscles, but it's what, yeah. what it mm-hmm. is. So here we go. And I'll do this English. I'll probably do this both ways because um, there's a point to be made. Flower muscle that unlocks the night and opens the anemone's meadow morning step by step until the polyphonic light of the loud skies pours into her lap, stretched into the quiet blossom star, muscle of endless openness, sometimes so overwhelmed by fullness that the sleepy wink of sunset barely can retrieve for you the petal's tips sprung far and free. You of how many worlds the will and strength. We, with our power, go on at greater length. But when, in which of all lives, when will we at last be open, ready to receive? Whoa. I like that one. <laughs> I mean, I, I can actually follow that one. And uh, wow, I liked a lot of that. The images were very clear. Yes. Yeah. It's an extraordinary description. And so Rilke, I think I said earlier, became the secretary to Rodin. Yeah. And Rodin said, one, work, work, work. It's not about inspiration. It's about work. And then Rilke said, but I, 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 I. And, and Rodin said, go to the zoo and choose an animal and watch it until you understand what's inside it. And then write about it from the animal's perspective. Rilke goes down to a Parisian zoo, sees a panther and writes the first, one of the first great Dingedichte, thing poems about the panther, hmm. right? And then he writes, not later, not much later, an incredible poem about a sculpture, a Greek sculpture in the, I think it's in the, uh, the Louvre, of a archaic torso of Apollo. Hmm. And he gives this incredible erotic description, not, not explicitly erotic, yeah. but sensual. I get it. And then the last line is, you must change your life. Mm. Whoa! <laughs> mm. Where did that come from? Du musst dein Leben ändern. You must change your life. So here he's saying the same thing. Look at that flower. Watch what happens to that flower. And then think about yourself. When will you be as willing as that flower is to take the sunlight that we all live with every day? So I'll read it in German because it's an extraordinary poem in German as in English. One of my favorites too, Lot. Mm-hmm. I, I could tell. <laughs> I could tell. Blumenmuskel. Der der Anemone Wiesen morgen nach und nach erschließt, bis in ihren Schoß das polyphone Licht der lauten Himmel sich ergießt, in den stillen Blütenstern gespannter Muskel des unendlichen Empfangs, manchmal so von Fülle übermannte, dass der Ruhewink des Untergangs kaum vermag die weit zurückgeschnellten Blätterrände dir zurückzugeben. Du, Entschluss und Kraft von wie viel Welten, Wir gewaltsamen, wir wären länger, aber wann, in welchem allen Leben, alle Leben, sind wir endlich offen und Empfänger. At last be open, ready to receive. But in the middle of that, oh God, German is a language. Mm-hmm. Four words, die, well, five, I'll add the D, the, the, weit zurückgeschnellten Blätterrände dir zurückzugeben. Four words, 17 syllables. <laughs> How do you translate that stuff? Read me the line in English. Okay. Correspond. Um, yeah, more or less. The sleepy wink of sunset barely can retrieve for you the petals 
tips sprung far and free. Weit zurückgeschnellten is, uh, let's see, the, let's see, the, the, the petals lips sprung far and free. Weit zurückgeschnellten zurückzugeben. <laughs> what do you do? So you can't use that in English, but mm -hmm. uh, you do the best you can. And that's that's where it is. But what an yeah. extraordinary poem. Yeah. And this is Rilke, you know, saying what we need to do. So I listened. I tried to listen and translated and translated again and again. I taught them. As you know, um, we've been part of, the, of Robert Bly's original mother conference for years and years and years. I've taught them uh, at, at the mother conference. I've done workshops on them. Um, it's, it's one of the things that I can do because I think the message that Rilke sends to all of us is so, so extraordinary. Um, let me share a couple that I love. Please. Um, yes. I'm going to go to... Oops. Yeah, this is the 15th one in the second part. And it's another dingadi, thing poem. Rilke's traveled around a lot. Russia you've already heard about, but throughout Europe, even to Africa. Very strange at that age, uh, in that period, before World War I, that you could get around the same way you used to be able to get around in Europe now before the Ukraine war. Did he ever out. come to the United States? No. Mm -hmm. No. He did. He was interested in, in English language poets. He translated the sonnets of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, somewhat unusually. Mm -hmm. But no, he never came to the U.S. Mm. No. Okay. Never did. That would have been unusual at that time, mm -hmm. I think. Um, in in I believe in Italy, he he saw we saw many, but he saw a fountain, a very common city situation in Europe, and the fountain, like many fountains, had a, had a face with an open mouth ooh, yeah. and water pouring out mm -hmm. into the basin down below. And in this case, the basin happened to be shaped like an ear maybe even mm -hmm. carved into an ear. Mm -hmm. So he wants to raise a question. He wants to raise the question, what is the nature of nature? You know, we've already been through the Tao Te Ching, if you will, Taoist principle, uh, is lock lock? Is lock still lock? Is lock, uh, what is it? What is the nature of nature? When the water comes into that mask and pours into the fountain, is it still natural? When does it cease to be natural? And so we're back at, at Aristotle that I mentioned in the first podcast and the nature of nature. Um, I'm thinking about John Stuart Mill, the great 19th century philosopher who says in his essay, Nature, we use the word nature in two ways, everything and everything except humans. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you say it's natural, usually you say well, it's, it's, every, it's not human. But of course, we're nature. So, so this is Aristotle's law of the excluded mm -hmm. middle, sort of kicking us, kicking back at us. And so uh, Rilke in this poem deals with that. And again, English probably helpful here because it's a little bit hard to follow. Um, and we'll see how it goes. 15 sonnet in the second part. Oh, fountain, oh, no, a little bit more would help. Um, you know what aqueducts are, of course. The Apennines are the mountain range that go down the middle of... Um, of Europe, part of Europe. O fountain mouth, you gift giver, you mouth, who states the one, the pure, at an unceasing pace. So here's the water coming out of the mm -hmm. mountain. Here, before the water's flowing face, you marble mask. And back there, to the south, 
the aqueduct's approach. From far away, past graves from where the Apennines begin, they bring to you your sayings that stay a moment only on the black age of your chin, then spill into the basin underneath. This is the ear laid there asleep, the marble ear into which you always speak, an ear of the earth. It's therefore true she speaks only with herself. If a jug intrudes, she thinks she's interrupted, thinks it's you. Hmm. So here's water, way back, mm -hmm. falls as rain, mm -hmm. comes down, put into the aqueducts, comes down under the ground, up into the fountain, out the mouth, into the ear. Is it nature? <laughs> is are the, is the, the fountain mouth, the carving of that stone, nature? When does the water cease to speak naturally? I find it a brilliant poem, very challenging, mm -hmm. and the translations are all bad. Mm. Because they all say, if someone, if you put a jug in, right? Mm. In other words, is the you then a human being? You know, because the fountain mouth doesn't have a jug, that doesn't have anything to do with it. You've got to have, the German is very clear, schiebt ein Krug sich ein, shoves ein bucket or, or jug or something like that, a pitcher, schiebt ein Krug sich ein. If a jug, if a pitcher jumps in, pushes itself in, it seems to her, the earth, that you, the mouth, but also you, humanity, has interrupted her. Did you? Where's the interruption? Now this, again, is so much fun to teach. When Anna and I work in China, we have taught this by taking a whole class of students and we make them into an aqueduct. And then we have somebody <coughs> with a big mouth standing there making the water come out and somebody lying down with an ear pointing up. And, and where does this cease to be natural? So Rilke has, has done, this poem for me deals with that question as well as any piece of literature that I know. Mm -hmm. It challenges us to raise that issue and make it as complicated as it is. Same theme in another way, equally brilliant, I think, another one of my favorites. The 20th sonnet in the second section. How far it is between stars. Mm. How far it is between stars. And yet how much farther what we learn right where we are. Between mm. us. Mm -hmm. You know, Locke's sitting there three feet away. But we're still a huge difference between us. Mm. A distance between us. How far it is between stars and yet how much farther what we learn right where we are. Take for example, one child and another, a neighbor. <laughs> oh, how incredibly far. Fate, maybe it measures us with some span of being, so it looks strange to our eye. Think how many spans just from a girl to a man mm -hmm. when she acts both seductive and shy. Mm -hmm. Everything's far, and the circle is nowhere closed. Look in the bowl on the bright, festive table, how unusual to see the fish's face. You know, mostly in America, if we cook fish, we cut the head off, you don't ever put the fish in. Mm -hmm. In China, you always have the fish's head, mm -hmm. but not here. Look in the bowl on the bright, festive table, how unusual to see the fish's face. Fish are dumb. That's what we once thought. Who knows? But isn't there finally a place where we speak without fish, 
what the fish's language might be. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a great line. So I'll do it yeah. in German so you hear that, and then I'll come back and do the whole English, because I interrupted it a lot, and, and that's fair, but not fair. Zwischen den Sternen wie weit, und doch um wie viel es noch weiter, was man am Hiesigen lernt. Einer zum Beispiel, ein Kind, und ein Nächster, ein Zweiter, oh wie unfestlich entfernt. Schicksal, es misst uns vielleicht mit der seienden Spanne, dass es uns fremd erscheint. Denk, wie viel Spannen allein vom Mädchen zum Manne, wenn es ihn meidet und meint. Alles ist weit und nirgends schließt sich der Kreis. Sie in der Schüssel auf heute bereitetem Tische, seltsam der Fische Gesicht. Fische sind stumm, meinte man einmal, wer weiß. Aber ist nicht am Ende ein Ort, wo man das, was der Fische Sprache wäre, ohne sie spricht. How far it is between stars, and yet how much farther what we learn right where we are. That's a great line. I love, I love that one. Take, for yeah. example, one child and another, a neighbor. <laughs> how incredibly far. Fate, maybe it measures us with some span of being so it looks strange to our eye. Think how many spans just from a girl to a man when she acts both seductive and shy. Everything's far. And the circle is nowhere closed. Look in the bowl on the bright festive table, how unusual to see the fish's face. Fish are dumb, that's what we thought once. Who knows? But isn't there finally a place where we speak without fish what the fish's language might be? I like that one too. <laughs> that's a great line. That is incredible. Makes you think quite a bit. As you say, quite complicated. Yeah, and, and, and he praises that. Mm -hmm. There's one poem I, I chose not to read where he says, you know, let's think about hunting. I remember, he says, watching them put white rags down into, a, into the, the, the karst in, in the, his neighborhood so that the, the birds would see it and then come up and then they would kill them all. Mm -hmm. And he says, killing is just one form of our living. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not good, it's not bad, but sometimes we do it. You're eating food, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> right. That's it. Um, let's see. Yeah, the 12th one in the first part, um, which ends with a line, one of my favorite lines from the whole, two of my favorite lines from the whole sequence. Hail to the spirit that can link us all, for living in images is in truth our way. And the footsteps of the clock are small beside the movement of our actual day. Mm. Without knowing our true place, we function in a way that's in a way that's real. Antennae stretch, antennae feel, and born through empty space, pure energy. Oh, the music of the world. Don't you find that even with light work, each of your cares lets loose and lifts? Even when the land is planned and farmed, the farmer cannot reach the seed transformed to summer. This earth gives gifts. Very hard translation problem because in two different versions of the Rilke, it is either transformed in summer, but I believe more accurately 
transformed to summer. Again, the German is different in two different versions of it. Mm -hmm. But, but it would be easy to say the farmer cannot reach the seed transformed in summer. Of course, seed gets transformed in summer. But no, the seed is transformed to summer. Hmm. Right? That's remarkable. This earth then gives gifts. And sometimes, of course, that gift, those gifts are threatened. I, I think about January 6th right now. I think about Ukraine today. Mm -hmm. I think about modern life in general. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, and one of the things that he says complexly threat, might threaten us, does threaten us, is the machine, a mechanical life. So here's the tenth sonnet in the second part. All that has been gained is threatened by the machine so long as it wants to be instead of obey. For the more rigid building it cuts the stone in a much stiffer way. So the lovelier hesitance of the marvelous hand is no longer seen. Nowhere does it hold back so that we for once might escape and let it oil itself in a factory without any noise. The machine is now life and thinks it knows best life's shape. With a single decision it orders, creates, and destroys. But for us existence is still magic. At a hundred places, the spring is still flowing, a play of pure forces no one, has know, no one has known without kneeling and showing their praise. From all that cannot be spoken, words still travel their delicate ways, and music which always is new builds in unusable spaces its own sacred house from the tremblingest stones. Mm. He... he touches that theme of machinery a number of times in the sonnets, and many critics, many translators even say these are the worst of the sonnets because, you know, we know all that stuff. Mm. But in 1920, machinery was still an issue. Mm. And um, I'll come back to one reason that I think that he handles it brilliant. And since it's we started with spring, I'll now move to winter and through winter again. Um, with the 13th poem in the second part. Be ahead of all parting, if it, as if it's behind you like the winter that now is passing. For among winters is one winter so lasting that your heart coming through winter comes thoroughly through. Be always dead in Eurydice. More singing, more praising, climb back to the pure relation. Make yourself climb. Here, among those who are vanishing, be in the kingdom of dying, be a clear, chiming glass that shatters itself with its chime. Be, and know also the notion of not being, the eternal cause of your internal swinging, that you might fully fulfill it this single time. To the old and worn, as well as the silent, heavy amount held, stored in the fullness of nature, the unsayable sums, count yourself joyously part and cancel the count. Mm. Count yourself joyously part, praise, and cancel the count. You're, a, you're alive. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. We know this. Mm -hmm. So what? You know, mm -hmm. come thoroughly through. It's, it's just extraordinary that, that he understands that. And, mm -hmm. and here is Orpheus grieving for Eurydice. Here is Rilke grieving for the daughter of his friend. But doesn't matter. 
Let's go somewhere else. One final topic, I think, and then it's probably time to do something else. Um, I want to go back one last time to Aristotle and Plato. Is Locke still Locke? Is Locke Locke? Whatever else. When are they not sonnets? What is a sonnet? You asked me that in starting. Right. And I gave you an answer. Well, all of these are sonnets. And Rilke starts out, the first three are quite conventional, iambic pentameter, just like a British sonnet. Mm -hmm. And then he goes somewhere else. And so what I'll, what I'll do now is read a couple of poems in German and, and let you hear the difference between what you've been hearing in much of the German and what he comes to at one point uh, in the middle of the first book. So if the first line of the first sonnet, voller Apfel, I can ex exaggerate it and make it iambic pant, mostly Stachelbeeren, oops, sorry, don't start there, John. Go back to the very beginning, which I don't need to look up because I know by heart. Da stieg ein Baum, o reine Übersteigung, o Orfeu singt, o hauer Baum im Ohr, und alle schwieg und selbst in der Verschweigung. You hear the da dum da dum da dum da dum. Now, you don't read it that way. It's more brilliant than that. Good poems may play with meter, but they play well with meter. But suddenly we're going to go somewhere else. Nur wer die Leier schon hob auch und unten, nur wer die Leier schon hob auch unter Schatten, darf das unendliche Lob ahnend erstarten. Nur wer Wer mit Toten vom Mohnass von den Ehren wird nicht den leisesten Ton wieder verlieren. Mach auch die Spiegelung im Teich oft uns verschwimmen. Wisse das Bild. Erst in dem Doppelbereich werden die Stimmen ewig und mild. So suddenly we're not having long lines. It's sort of more like a nursery rhyme. Mm. Um, and he, he starts doing that and about oh, seven or eight poems later, comes back to the same rhythm. This is a, a form of music known in German poetry, not familiar in English much, called Knittelvers, where you're going da-da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, dum-dum, da-da-dum, dum-dum. Familiar, but not usual. Zu unterst der alte verworn, alte erbauten Wurzel, verborgene Born, den sie nie schauten, Sturmhirn und Jägerhorn, Spruch von der Rauden, Männer im Bruderzorn, Frauen wie Lauten, drängen der Zweig an Zweig nirgends ein Freier, einer, o steig, o steig, aber sie brechen noch, dieser erst oben durch biegt sich zur Leier. In English, at the bottom, tangled, root of all that's been built, the old one, mysterious source they never saw. Storm helmet, hunting horn, men torn by feuds, women, words from the wisest born, women like lutes, branch pressing on branch, nowhere a free one. One is, grow higher, go higher, but they are breaking still, yet high above this one will bend to a lyre. Mm. So it's very different music. Yeah, and well, just just yeah. looking at the poems yeah. from here, yeah. you can yeah. see the short form. Sure. Yeah. yeah, compared still, to the ones you were reading before. Absolutely, they're still sonnets. Four, four, three, three. Yeah, they're still rhymes. Um, most of them in my fairborn, born, erbauten, geschauten, root, built, source, saw. These are hard when they get shorter because you don't have room to rhyme in. Yeah, but hunting horn, wisest born, feuds, lutes, branch. One, uh, still higher, higher, liar.
but so it's imp almost impossible. Yeah. This is where Robert Bly and I first fought. How are you going to do those? I can't. Well, I can it's Robert. Kind of hearing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then immediately after that one, he does another in the same shortened verse. Only now he's going to turn it and make it as mechanical as it actually sounds. Hörst du das neue Herr drönen und beben, kommen verkündige dies erheben. Zwar ist kein Hören heil in dem durchtobt sein, doch der Maschinenteil will jetzt gelobt sein. Sieh die Maschine, wie sie sich wälzt und recht und uns entstellt und schwächt. Hat sie aus uns auch Kraft, sie ohne Leidenschaft, treibe und diene. So now he's going to attack the machines. Have you heard the latest, Lord? Droning and drumming. Prophets who are coming, Lord, say it's the greatest. Of course, you can't hear your heart in the ruckus that's raised. But now the machine part wants to be praised. See the machine, how it takes revenge, twists and swerves, takes our place, breaks our nerves. So what if it strengths from us without any passion or fuss? Let it drive. Let it serve. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. So we're now in a different, in a different language, in a different yeah. world. Mm -hmm. And part of the point here is the same thing. The the most notable um, German critic of poetry, historian of German poetry, really, Wolfgang Kaiser, has a little book called the Kleine Deutsche Verschule, so a little primer of of German verse, and he says. It's unfortunate. Rilke wrote some good sonnets, but these aren't sonnets. I'm astonished that he included them because they're no longer iambic pentameter or no longer traditional form. Now we're here, and he'll go from, from here on out. After the first three, he doesn't rarely use iambic pentameter, but usually does not do that any longer. And um, let me find... The last, the next one, 19 in part one, ends this way. No, let's do the whole thing. It's short. 119. What if the world shifts quick as cloud shapes go drifting? All that is finished spins back to its origins. Over the shifting and change, freer and higher, your anthem remains God with the lyre. None of the pains are known. Nor is love learned, and death has not yet returned on questions it raises. Over the earth, song alone sanctifies praises. Over the earth, song alone sanctifies praises. So the machine, and then back, and then the machine, and then here, it's okay. We live with what we have to live. We must do that, and yet we praise The um, the short poems that, that I've just been reading come eventually in the 24th poem in the first section, and I'll do three more poems, and then we'll talk a little bit if you'd like, and mm -hmm. then be done. Um, Rilke, of course, is talking about the modern age all the time, mm -hmm. about machinery, and he, he's part of that age. He knows it's coming. But he also has not sentimentality towards the past, but recognition of the past. And he fears that 
we and our obsession with the machine will ignore that. So he has this remarkable one, and now again you're going to hear not short lines but much longer lines, yeah. very different meter. I can see you can it. see that from yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll I'll do the first one, the first stanza in English, and then do it in German before I do the rest of the poem because you can't translate this stuff. Uh, German goes on, as I pointed out earlier, with the 14, what's 15, 16 syllables and four words. Now we're going to have four lines that are all one line without a verb. Hmm. What should we do with our old, old friends, those great gods who ask nothing? Hmm. Throw them out? Because of a gap between them and the hard steel we raised strictly and yet knows nothing of them? Or suddenly look for them on a map? Let's <laughs> take out our, our gazetteer and say, right, where are the gods? Yeah. In German, he starts and he doesn't get to the to the to the verb, throw them out, until about fifteen minutes later. Mm-hmm. And how do you translate that? Sollen wir unsere uralte Freundschaft, die große niemals werbenden Gürtel, weil sie der harte Stahl, den wir strenger zogen, nicht kennt, throw out, verstoßen. <laughs> you know, okay. So there's a different language here as well, or suddenly look for them on a map. These powerful friends who take the dead from us find no place on our wheels. We've come a long way with our banquets and baths, and their messengers, even with wings on their heels, have long been too slow. We pass them continually. Now, more lonely, all thrown together, not knowing each other, we lay out our paths no longer as gentle meanders, but as straight lines. Fires everywhere have grown dimmer. Now they burn only in boilers. The hammers lift only there, grown bigger and bigger. We, however, lose strength like swimmers. Hmm. We, however, lose strength like swimmers. You know, he's, he's, he's voicing the concerns of the 20th century, the 21st century. Again, what a day to be doing this when we're, I'm living, and you are too, perhaps, Locke. In, in questions about what Europe will look like in, in one week or two days or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Let me end with two poems. Okay. Do you have any questions or comments at this point? Not really, not uh, really, no. I'm just listening is, and uh, learning a lot. Well, thank you for your patience and your time. Uh, what a treat to be able to do this and what a treat to have, have finally been able to put them together quite deliberately and make a book of them. This one is the last sonnet written. Um, and it's, it's, it's a remarkable, remarkably complicated in its language, both in English and in my translation, though the, the, the principle is quite simple. It's this. I'm now, as Locke can see, as you can't, those of you who are listening, a breath, right? Mm-hmm. You just saw a breath. Yeah. Very simple. And that's a poem. Mm-hmm. So here's Rilke. Breath, you invisible poem, continual and pure exchange of space and self, counterpoise in which I rhythmically occur. Single wave, whose slow sea I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Single wave, whose slow sea I am. You, skimpiest of all possible seas, space first one, one breath. Mm -hmm. 
how many of these places in space at one time were inside me. Many winds seem like my sun. You, air, still full of places once mine, do you recognize me? You, at once my words, leaf and roundness and also smooth rind. That's hard. At once my words, leaf and roundness and also smooth rind. Brilliant in German, devilishly hard in English. It is suddenly this, this breath, which is a poem, is also the leaf of the tree, the fruit of the tree, and the rind of the fruit after you've eaten it. Here's the German. Atmen, du unsichtbares Gedicht. Immerfort um das eigene Sein, rein eingetauschter Weltraum. Gegengewicht, in dem ich mich rhythmisch ereigne. Einzige Welle, deren allmähliches Meer ich bin. Sparsamste du von allen möglichen Meeren. Raumgewinn. Wie viele von diesen Stellen der Räume waren schon innen in mir. Manche Winde sind wie mein Sohn. Erkennst du mich, Luft? Du, voll noch einst einige Orte. Du, einmal glatte Rinde, Rundung und Blatt meiner Worte. Breath, you invisible poem. Continual and pure exchange of space and self. Counterpoise, in which I rhythmically occur. Single wave whose slow sea I am. You, skimpiest of all possible seas. Space, first one. How many of these places in space at one time were inside me? Many winds seem like my sun. You, air, still full of places once mine, do you recognize me? You, at once my words, leaf and roundness and also smooth rind. Mm. <laughs> Not easy, but wonderful. Mm -hmm. The last one published, the final poem in the second book, the 29th sonnet, second part. Um, I have a question. Please. Um, has anyone ever discovered the sonnets that he didn't include? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, those are... Those exist? They exist. Uh, Stephen Mitchell, um, whose work I like a lot at times, but the Rilke translations, I, I, can give you the, I can give you the positive and the negative here. The book is, the book is extraordinary. I have it with me. Um, because he does that work so that, that he... He says, here's the sequence right here. Mm -hmm. These are the ones that I think are good. These are the ones that I think are not good. And, and it's extraordinarily valuable. And he knows his stuff. He's done his work. I don't know what his German level is, but I trust him. Um, at the same time, let's see. Here's the start, the very first poem, which you may remember. Da stieg ein Baum. Da, there, stieg, rose, ein, a. Baum, tree. Mm -hmm. A tree ascended there. No! As Bly would say, the vowels are wrong, mm -hmm. and, or the simplicity of the language. It is so simple. Da stieg ein Baum. You have to respect Rilke. He just starts like that. You have the problem, and it's, it's, it's an unsolvable problem. Da stieg ein Baum, o reine Übersteigung. Literally, 
and I wrote a whole long passage in the back of this book, there rose a tree, O pure overrising. Transcendence is the best translation of that, but then you have to have a tree ascended there. That's clever, thank you, Stephen Mitchell, but not right. Mm. So um, for me, I made up a language. There rose a tree, O more than mere uprising. Mm. Uprising I like because it's a revolution. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that, mere uprising. Mm-hmm. So yes, the, the the scholarship on these things goes forever and is complete. But good question, and and glad that I had a chance to say that. Good. Here is the last of the sonnets. One brilliant line in the middle of it, and I'll give it even in advance. In German, ist dir trinken bitter, werde Wein, is for you drinking bitter become wine. Mm-hmm. Quiet friend of many far, far places, mm-hmm. feel how space increases each time that you breathe. In the beams of the dark belfry, let your peal ring out. Whatever comes to feed on you grows strong from what it eats. Make time for transformation. Travel out and in. Where does your deepest suffering begin? If drinking makes you bitter, become wine. Be in this night of extravagance at your senses' crossroads, all their magic cunning of their strong meeting make the sense. And when you feel no part of any worldly plan, to the quiet earth say, I am running, to the rushing water state, I am. Stille Freund, der vielen Ferne, fühle, wie dein Atem noch den Raum vermehrt. Im Gebälk der finstern Glockenstühle, lass dich läuten. Das, was an dir zehrt, wird ein starkes über diese Nahrung. Geh in der Verwandlung aus und ein. Was ist deine leidenste Erfahrung? Ist dir trinken bitte, werde Wein. Sei in dieser Nacht aus Übermaß Zauberkraft am Kreuzweg deiner Sinne, ihre seltsamen Begegnung sind. Und wenn dich das irdische vergaß, zu der stillen Erde sag, ich renne, zu dem raschen Wasser sprich, ich bin. So, just to finish, let me give you the English again. Quiet friend of many far, far places, feel how space increases each time that you breathe. In the beams of the dark belfry, let your peal ring out. Whatever comes to feed on you grows strong from what it eats. Make time for transformation. Travel out and in. Where does your deepest suffering begin? If drinking makes you bitter, become wine. Be in this night of extravagance at your senses crossroad all their magic cunning of their strange meeting. Make the sense. And when you feel no part of any worldly plan, to the quiet earth say, I am running, to the rushing water state, I am. Mm. So as I finished that, I felt my love affair was over. Mm. I am running, mm-hmm. I am, and thank you a lot for listening and sharing these films. Well, it's been really interesting for me. Um, I, I'm a lover of poet poetry, but... Um, my my poetry world is limited sort of to great mother conference greatest hits, that kind of thing. I mean I I have a whole 
bookshelf full of poetry that I was exposed to at the Great Mother Conference. But my experience in listening to you read Rilke is now I have some context by which I would like to go back and reread this and understand it. Because when I was reading them, I, I had no context, really. I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're beautiful poems, but having listened to you now, I have a lot more to react to, mm -hmm. is the way I... Well, this is why I would yeah. this is why I would do this and this is why I'm so thankful to you for letting me do this because mm -hmm. this is where we're we're though we've known each other a long time and though as I know sitting here in this room looking around I see the extraordinary art that Locke has collected and even some of the work that uh, he has from us because we have been working with peasant artists in China yes. so I know his love of beauty but we've never talked about this sort of thing before, really. No, we haven't. And so it's an extraordinary opportunity for me, and I thank Ann Arbor, my wife, for calling Locke and saying, get John over there and see if he can do a podcast for you. Would you be willing to do that? Locke says, oh, yeah. <laughs> Locke says, sure, let's do it. And here we are on this beautiful bright, Sunday morning. Yeah. And, and your questions are brilliant. No. Your quest no, your questions are superb because you need that context. Mm -hmm. and, and it is hard reading the Sonnets to Orpheus if you don't put that context in. You know, no, nobody, I never see anybody talking about Tao Te Ching and Rilke, talking about Aristotle and Rilke. Mm -hmm. And yet Rilke, by making these sonnets new types of poetry, is saying a sonnet is a sonnet even if it is not a sonnet. Mm -hmm. And um, that's offensive to Wolfgang Kaiser, the editor of the... You know, he says, no, these aren't right. They're, they're not proper sonnets, and therefore they're not sonnets. No! Mm -hmm. He transforms the form. And, of course, this is exactly what Robert Bly was trying to do at the beginning of his career. I see um, being a big... I mean, you know, I, I absolutely adore Robert Bly. And yeah. I can see his influence or how... Whichever way you want to put it, I see a lot of parallels between yes. what you're reading and telling me and what I know about Robert Bly. Yes, yes. And so for, that's very interesting to me. For me, it's wonderful because um, though I had begun working on Rilke long before I met Robert, and though when we first met, we fought about it, as I said, um, still I respect fully what he was trying to do. And, and yes, our goals, Rilke's goals, his goals, my goals, and many other people are much the same. You're trying to get us from one century to another, from one world to another. Mm -hmm. and, and on a day especially when we're looking at perhaps the transformation of Europe, yet again, you want to be able to understand how, how the philosophical and poetic and scientific worlds interrelate so that we can understand what the consequences might be of Chernobyl now being in hand in the hands of Russia again. Mm -hmm. What the consequences might be of the resistance of Ukrainian males, because they are prohibited from leaving the country right now, as you probably have heard. Um, it's, it's that, it, it's that we, need, we need to understand what Robert talked about continually in all our time together with him, what Rilke talks about, writes about continually, what we talk about when we're, when we're, when we're with each other and trying to deal with the issues that confront us. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, sometimes it's helpful to have a poet who sort of points the way, and Rilke has done that. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot. And um, 
What I was thinking, and we haven't discussed this, but maybe a good way to end this would just uh, read a few poems that you love. And, and I have one, but just sort of free form. Yeah. And uh, that seems like kind of a, a great mother conference kind That's of way great. of Let's doing do that. things. You've got one, I know. I've got one that I, I found this poem. I, I've been reading this book, Born Under the Sign of Odin, The Life and Times of Robert Bly's Little Magazine and Small Press yeah. by Mark Gustafson. Gustafson, Gustafson. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, there's a lot of it I, I don't understand because <laughs> I'm not well-versed in, in poetry, really. And, but I, I love Robert's spirit throughout, throughout this, and I can see it, you know, him dissing anyone he wants to diss with respect, I think, sometimes. Sometimes not. Sometimes not. Sometimes not. <laughs> James Dickey. But I, <laughs> yeah, boy, that's an interesting relationship oh, yeah. to read about. Um, and I actually have a couple of copies of um, the 50s and the 60s, the real ones. Yeah. Thomas Smith gave them to yes. me. But um, I, read, I found this poem, probably not coincidentally, just about when Robert died. November, wasn't it? November last year, I think. Doesn't matter. But I, I loved it. And uh, this is Robert Bly. I didn't know this poem. And when you read a poem like this, do you read the one, two, and three breaks? or you, do you? Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah. Didn't know. But he has this broken into three pieces. The first part, one. I cannot wait for the night to come again and the huge stars to come. All over the heavens, bowls of cradles and black pools, and the blue to fade away. Two, you must be alone six hours before you look at the stars. <laughs> that, that makes me laugh. That's so rough. And then coming out into the dark heavens, you will be like a drunkard returning to his table. Three, there's a huge star that stands alone in the western darkness. Articus. When I read that the Arabs called it the keeper of heaven, I felt a strange joy. I think it was in the womb that I received the thirst for the dark heavens. It just seemed like <laughs> the perfect poem to me to find when he died. It's Do just, the last stanza again. Yeah. Arcturus? Arcturus, yes. Three, there, there's a huge star that stands alone in the western darkness. Arcturus. When I read that the Arabs called it the keeper of heaven, I felt a strange joy. I think it was in the womb that I received the thirst for the dark heavens. <laughs> wow, I, I just love that poem. And it, to me, it's so imbued with Robert Bly and kind of the way he wanted to go out, I think. But that's just me. What do you have? I've got a, I have gave a, started this with a Kabir poem. Yes. I'll come back to a Kabir poem. Yeah. And these are all Robert Bly These are all Robert Bly translations. Robert did, you know, a, a brilliant poet. Surely one of the ten most important poets in the 50s to 2000 in the United States. Um, but, but even more important because he went out, he, he got a Fulbright to Norway and, and got there and uh, 
suddenly was exposed to poets that all the Europeans knew and that he had never heard of. Mm -hmm. And began translating them. And as he said, quite publicly, I'm terrible at this, but do it better than I did. Yeah. You know? And, and so he came back and he brought us poems and poets that we had never heard. Year after year, there would be the announcement of the Nobel Prize in Literature. And somebody would say, oh, God, who is, who's that? That's who has translated him, Robert Bly. Nobody mm -hmm. else. That's yeah. who has translated Robert Bly. Nobody else. And so, you know, one after another, from Thomas Tranströmer through uh, many, many, many others. And then not only that, but going back in time and going to Coleman Barks at the Second Mother Conference and handing him a sheaf of poems, saying, here are some poems that need to be uh, freed from their cages. And, of course, that brings us to Rumi. Famous story. <laughs> <laughs> and and, 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 Kabir, and Mirabai, and I wish yeah. I had Mirabai here, because the one I want to really read is, 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 is a Mirabai poem, but I don't I have it. I have it. You might go get it. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, leave it on. We're good. We're, we're, okay, well... I, I've Why got don't one. you read I've that? Got that one, and we'll see whether you come back or not. He's maybe right. go off and right here. find someone else. Now, this is Robert Bly's translation of Kabir. Between the conscious and the unconscious, the mind has put up a swing. You can hear the Rilke in that, right? Yeah. Between the conscious and the unconscious, the mind has put up a swing. All earth creatures, even the supernovas, sway between these two trees, and it never winds down. Angels, animals, humans, insects by the millions, also the wheeling sun and moon. Ages go by and it goes on. Everything is swinging. Heaven, earth, water, fire, and the secret one slowly growing a body. Kabir saw that for 15 seconds and it made him a servant for life. <laughs> Everything is swinging. Heaven, earth, water, fire, and the secret one slowly growing a body. Kabir saw that for 15 seconds, and it made him a servant for life. Oh, I, I love all those. <laughs> can't hear me, but um, I, I thought I had a separate volume of Maribu. Doesn't matter. Maribu, but I, I can't find it. I try to put everything in alphabetical order, but sometimes <laughs> well, what it a treat. Worse. Um, for me, as a teacher, it's always fun to, to be able to talk with somebody who, in this case, knows a little bit less about Rilke than I know. A little and, bit? <laughs> a little bit less. And, and, anyway. and, and is willing to listen and willing to talk and to ask good questions about it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's always a pleasure, in the same way that for me, to listen to Robert so many years and have him bring in a poet and say, do you know this person? I say, no. And, and say, all right, I need to learn that. And, you know, your bookshelf says that that's your world too. Robert mentioned this or the Mother Conference or somebody brought that in. I got to read it. That's what I used to love about the Great Mother Conference when Robert was around is who he'd bring in. I always look forward to... <laughs> we're, we're sort of devolving into talking about Robert, but... I was always fascinated who he was interested in. We're talking about yeah. poetry. Poetry, And yes. Robert is there, and I think of the Second Mother Conference when he brings in this man, Etheridge Knight. Mm. I have and a lot of Etheridge. Kadoom, kadoom, doom, kadoom, kadoom, doom, doom, until we know that we can get from here to Nigeria and back again. Mm -hmm. And we are of the same universe and the same race, that is to say humans, and that we need to hear the drum that beats for us and keeps us alive, mm -hmm. the heart and the music and the poetry that makes life 
possible and worth living. That's a good summary of how it works, I think. And uh, John, it's unless you have more, no, I've, it's, I've, it's been a real delight to do this my with pleasure, you. Believe me. And um, I look forward to posting this podcast and hope that many of our friends and some people that don't know about Rilke will be exposed to that and perhaps become interested. Thank you again. And uh, I will say, too, that if anyone really wants to get John's book, and doesn't know Ann Arbor, not on Facebook, just get in touch with me, and I'll make sure you get a copy. So, John, thanks again for being here, and it's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Luck. Take care now.